0: All right, we continue our sermon series in the Shorter Catechism this afternoon, and we have come to question five. And I want to begin by reviewing the questions that we've already done. I'm, of course, encouraging you to memorize these as we go along. So let's uh, say the answers to these in, in unison. Question one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Question two. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Question three, what do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Question four, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And then today, we move into question five. It's another question about God himself. And the question is, question five, Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. You realize what you just said? Just one God? That's something that is offensive for people to say today in this world, that there is only one true and living God. When Christians confess that there is only one true God, We are claiming that everyone else is worshiping false gods. Paul makes this quite clear in 1 Corinthians 8. I invite you to turn there. 1 Corinthians 8. We'll be looking at that primarily. Jumping around some. But in this chapter, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is talking about whether Christians should eat foods that have been previously offered to idols. In the sacrifices to idols, a portion, when the pagans would worship their idols, a portion would be given to the idol on the altar, and another portion would be given to the priest who is officiating, that he would have to eat, and sometimes the worshipers would have a portion as well. But then there were so many sacrifices that were brought that the, the, the priests couldn't eat it all with their families, and so there would be leftovers. And they would sell those in the market. And so you could pick up some, you know, value village meat kind of thing. And uh, go by and get some stuff that had already been used in, this, uh, in the sacrifices. At a very good price. And uh, you weren't eating at an idol. You weren't at an idol feast when you were eating that meat. You were just buying meat that had been, had been used in that way. The leftovers. So Paul's testing testifying here that there's technically no problem for a Christian to eat that meat because these idols are not really gods anyway and as Christians we know unless we're new believers with weak consciences we know he says that you know eating this idol meat is not something that you're having fellowship with some some idol or something because he, you know, he says you need to be careful though, around new believers that might get the wrong idea that you were somehow communing with the idol, or they might struggle if you give the meat to them. Maybe they used to worship that idol temple, and they're struggling with the association of that meat. It also might give um, unbelievers the wrong impression. You don't want to do that. If they say, you know, hey, this meat was offered to my idol, you know, you want to come and eat with me? And you're like, no, I don't. <laughs> Um, because then they're inviting you kind of into a communion with their idol. So that's what Paul's talking about. But what we're looking at here is in presenting this teaching, Paul makes an important claim that belongs to our Christian confession. That for us, he says, for who? For us as Christians. For us, there is only one true God. Look at 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. He says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. He readily acknowledges that there are many different gods, so-called, that are worshiped and served, but he shows that as Christians we're different. Verse 6 again, for us, there is one God. You can see how Paul identifies the uniqueness of God in this passage. He is, God is, verse 6, the Father of whom are all things. That's what distinguishes the true God from all others. He is the creator of all things. Everything else has its origin from Him and would not be here if He had not made it. He is not just different than by degree from other beings, whether angels or principalities or power. He's not just different in degree. He's in an entirely different classification. He is God. Everything else is not God. He is self-existing. Everything else is made by Him. There is, in fact, no comparison between God the Creator and that which is made by Him. Paul adds to this confession that we are for Him. See that also in verse 6? Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, that's what we just saw, and we for Him. Since He made everything, that means it's all for Him. We are here by Him, and so we are here for His purposes. And so are all other beings for that matter. For Christians, this is all the more so because we have been brought to repentance so that we consciously acknowledge that we are to be for God, that we are to consciously direct our way to live for God. Like we saw in the very first question, that our chief end, our highest end, our highest purpose that we have as human beings is that we live for the glory of God. In other words, we do this deliberately we're, we're, we try to be for God. Everything's for God, whether they like want to be or not. But we do we, we are for God in a deliberate way. Now when we forget that, we start to treat something else as God. We always do. Something else quickly moves into the place that belongs to God only. We act as if we ourselves are God. Or we make a God out of riches or pleasures, or security, being safe. That becomes our whole focus. Sometimes we even make a God out of other people. If you want to drive someone crazy, then get, get married to them as an idol that you make like God. They'll, they'll be so frustrated with you because you'll always be looking for what they can never, never deliver. We cannot flourish when we try to live for something other than God because we're out of harmony with the true and living God when we do that. It's death. It's the pathway of destruction to move away from God as our God. It can be a slow death, but it's death. We become like a fish trying to live outside of water. We're trying to live where we do not belong when we do that. Paul adds yet more to describe the uniqueness of the true God there is with him, with the true God, one Lord Jesus Christ. One Lord Jesus Christ with the Father, through whom are all things and through whom we live. So that's the third way that Paul mentions the uniqueness of of the true God. Paul mentions the Son here because the Son is the one through whom the one true God that Paul is talking about is now revealed. Since Jesus came in the world and really even before he came into the world in, in our flesh God was the Father to God the Son. Everything comes, as Paul says, through Him, through the Son, as well as through the Father. And it is through the Son that we all live. The Son is the one who gives life. By mentioning Christ, Paul narrows the one God to be exclusively the God who revealed Himself in His Son. He is the God who sent His Son to redeem His people from Himself. So the one true God, in fact, was always revealed in the world as the one who not only created all things and who judges the world, but also as the one who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit, of course. The one who called out a people to be redeemed by His grace through the Son of His promise is the true God. There's not another God besides that one. Not a God who doesn't have a son. Not a God who is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No God but that one that sent Jesus is the true God. Sometimes people will say, oh, well, Allah is one God. And no, he's not the true God because he doesn't have a son. And the true God has a son. So Paul is showing us that who the true God is. Now, I want you to think about how strong this claim is. It's a claim that we make as Christians that when it comes to God, we are right and everybody else is wrong. That sounds very arrogant, doesn't it? The world would say that that is arrogant. We are saying that all of those people with all their shrines and all their temples and all of their devotions and their sacrifices are wrong and are worshiping what is not God when they worship. We are saying that anyone who confesses a different God is not worshiping God at all. Paul has no room for any of that rot that says that ultimately we're all worshiping the same God under different names. It's not at all what he's talking about. That's a nice, sweet thing, but it's not true. There is no place for that kind of nonsense in the Christian confession. He asserts that there is only one true God and that all the others are not God. They're only so-called gods. Elsewhere, he goes a step further and says that those who worship idols are actually worshiping demons. It's just a little later in this first letter to the Corinthians that he writes about this. Keep your place in chapter 8, but go over to chapter 10 for a minute. Here he is insisting that Christians should never worship in an idol temple because those who worship idols are essentially worshiping demons. Remember what we talked about before is different. It was eating the leftovers after they've worshipped the idol, and then they have the leftover meat. You could buy that meat in the market and eat that meat. But you are never to go into an idol temple and feast the, with the idol, so to speak. In First Corinthians ten nineteen through 20, he says, What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or that what is offered to idols is Anything? Rather, this is 1 Corinthians 10.20, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. I don't want you to have dinner with demons. So all those who worship other gods, so-called gods, are in fact worshiping demons. The idea is that the demons come to respond to, to idolatrous worship idolatrous worship of God to the worship of the false versions of God the demons take their place in other words when people drift into idolatrous worship soon they are no longer worshiping God at all they are worshiping demons So looking back at 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, again, Paul is asserting something that is part of our confession as Christians, that for us, there is only one living and true God and that no one is worshiping him but us. I can hear the objections. This is an offensive teaching. The world of many gods will challenge us about this first challenge, they'll say, "How can you? How do you know that you are right? Are you Christians saying that you are right and everybody else is wrong?" I think I've told you about this before, but when I was a new Christian, I remember I went to my mother's Sunday school class at the liberal church that I grew up in. I didn't know that the church, the minister, didn't believe uh, that Jesus rose from the dead at that time. So I went to church when I came home in the summer I, as a new Christian. And in that class, they were discussing about Paul being arrogant and how he had a problem with arrogance. And some of them were saying, oh, I don't think he does. And they were going back and forth because Paul asserted things like this. He's a very arrogant man. He thinks he knows stuff that you know, other people don't know. So are you Christians saying that you are right and that everybody else is wrong? The answer to that? Yes. We're saying that we're right and that everybody else is wrong. That's right. Not about everything. I mean, not about the stock market or something like that, but about God, about the things that God has revealed. We must not be ashamed to make this claim because it is God who has revealed these things to us by His Spirit. We are not claiming by any stretch that we have superior wisdom to others or that we've figured out everything by our diligent searching, that, you know, I've done more of a search than you have, I've heard, heard people arguing about that. Well, I've searched for God more than you have. No, I've done more. Well, that's not the point. Paul reminds us in this very letter that most of us are not known for our superior wisdom or our greatness in the world. In fact, in, in chapter one of this same letter, 1 Corinthians, he says that God has particularly chosen us because we're not all that wise. Are not all that great. That generally speaking, the people that he chooses for his own are the ones who are not something of superior wisdom or greatness in the world. It's interesting because Paul was, he was one of the smartest guys around. But as a general rule, it's not how he operates. 1 Corinthians 1 he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, people in high positions, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. So what are we doing as Christians when we say we're right? Everybody else is wrong about God. We're just telling what has been revealed by God. Not what we have figured out because we're smarter. It's not because it's more complicated that we believe it. It's because it's true. He explains that it was not by our natural ability that we came to know the truth about God. But because of the call and revelation of God to us by his spirit. In 2.14 he says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God. A man left to himself. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And in 2.10, he says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. And in 2.13, he adds, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So we're not trying to make some kind of big, complicated philosophical arguments about God and all those kind of things. But we're simply receiving what is known to all, but suppressed and denied. This is what gives us confidence, not ourselves, but God's word. Paul's whole point is that our confidence does not rest in our own ability, but in that we have received revelation from God himself. God's spirit has convinced us of the truth, and therefore we are convinced. We know the truth, and we can't deny it, because God has shown it to us. I've sometimes explained this, of it being like a joke, that when you don't understand, like a, a joke that's told, and everybody's laughing, and you're, and you're going, oh, I, don't, I don't understand, what you, I, don't, I don't get it. And then you get it, oh, I get it. Now you can't go back again, and not get it anymore. Once you get it, you get it. And you can't You can't say, oh, I don't see any, oh, it's confusing, I don't understand, I'm not sure, I don't understand. And other people are going, I don't get it. Once they get it, they get it. What what is it that the Spirit has revealed to us, enabled us to see and know? The Spirit enables us to receive the gospel. We come to see and be convinced what is very, very obviously true, it's not complicated, that we have sinned against our Maker, the One who made us. And we come to see that Christ is the Savior sin we will not fully admit our sin until we also hear and see the mercy of god in christ because in the way of salvation that god has provided because it's too hard for us to accept sin until we see that there is mercy also some of you grew up with the gospel you heard this all along and it's just the plain truth but once the spirit convinces us of christ and of our sin there's no way to turn back and deny and not be able to see that we're desperate sinners, and that we can't save ourselves, and that the only way to be saved is through through Christ. You, you, you can't get away from the truth. We've heard the truth from God. We've received it from Him. Once you get it, you can't not get it. Now, once we are convinced, we become one of those that Paul describes who knows the true God, the only true God, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8:6, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. We are now in connection with the living and true God and with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And for us, there's no one else. There's no other God. We know the truth and we're confident in asserting that all gods but this God are no gods at all. If you meet Christians who say that Jesus is a way for them, but that other people have other ways of coming to God, then you know that they're not really a Christian. They don't get it. They don't see yet clearly what it really is to be a Christian. They're not really resting in the salvation that God has given. They don't understand. If you think there's other ways, you don't get it. You haven't seen yet. You haven't been enlightened. So our confidence then, it's not that we consider ourselves wiser or greater or anything. It's that God has revealed the truth. I can hear another objection. The world will say, how can so many people all be wrong about God? Well, Paul says that there are many gods and many lords that are worshipped. Where did all the confusion come from? How can so many people be wrong? Let me answer that question. The Bible is very clear about that. The Bible teaches that all the confusion about the true God is a result of our idolatry. The very thing that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 8. Idolatry begins with adjusting God to your own liking. Not, of course, you can actually change God. You can't do that. He's unchangeable. But that you change what you believe about Him simply because you want to think about Him in a different way that pleases you more. Idolatry is often a group effort that's engaged in over several generations. So understand that we all started out the one true God, the knowledge of God. Adam and Eve knew that there was only one God. They The God they knew was the one who would one day be revealed in Jesus Christ. Even after the fall, they still knew the one God, the one true God, and actually received the first ever promise of Christ who would, who would call out a people and for himself and would deliver them from Satan and bondage to him and and bring them back to God. And after the flood, there was only Noah and his family, and they all knew the one true God as well. But in both cases, within a generation, people were already starting to worship God in idolatrous ways. They were starting to change the truth about God, to modify how they came to him to modify what God requires, to modify God himself. The process of idolatry is described in Romans 1, 20 through 25. Let's take a look at that. Romans 1, verse 20. First, that they all knew God, but wanted to change the truth about him. Scripture testifies to that. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power in Godhead or divine nature, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. They all started out, but then they made their modifications. Second, that they began to make major modifications in the way they thought of God and the way they worshipped Him. They made idols, and they worshipped Him by idols. At first, they worshipped the true God by idols. Romans 1, 22-23, though, says, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. No, they began to change the way that they looked at the true God. Then God left them to live degraded lives of immorality. Romans one twenty four. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's what you could find in the, Roman, in the Greco-Roman culture where, where Paul was ministering when he wrote this. And it's what you find increasingly in our culture as well. You can see from this how we ended up with so many different gods. You have a number of different communities or families who over the years are practicing idolatry. Okay, So here they are, there's a little group over here, a group over there, different parts of the world as people are spreading out into the world. They're practicing various forms of idolatry. At first, they make a few modifications about God and how He's worshipped. They just tweak it a little bit. Then greater modifications are made so that God becomes for them more and more like, what did Paul say, birds and beasts and people and whatever, or impersonal forces sometimes. They move in that direction. They move in different directions. Whatever, idolatry always weakens God. It always makes him less holy. I'm talking about perception of the people, of course, that are worshiping. Uh, Less holy, less present, because it is his holiness and infinite presence that really makes people uncomfortable. And so they start to make it so that he's not so all-knowing and all-present and all those things that we looked at uh, last time when we looked at God, things that make them uncomfortable. I'm not comfortable with that. So the, the idolatry, you begin to shave these things away from God. When these different communities then that have formed their different... One of them makes God to be more like a force that's impersonal, not really, doesn't really care what people do. He's just a power that you can draw on. And another one wants to weaken his power and make him sort of like, more like us. Well, when the different communities meet together in some future time, they have different gods that they've developed and that they're worshiping from different parts of the world. They have concocted these gods by so modifying the true God in his worship that they have new gods. This is where you end up with what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, that was the case in his day, many gods and many lords. This was the reality after centuries of idolatry. People say, where did all the religions come from? I just told you. But when Jesus Christ calls us by his spirit to salvation, we are set free from this idolatry. And we're brought back to the one true God. We come back to the true God and to the true way to approach God, which is through Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, there is one God, the father of whom are all things and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we live. So, yes, we do believe that we are right and all the others are wrong and that they went wrong by idolatry. We know that we are right because the Lord has restored us to himself by the gospel. But now, you must make sure that you are actually serving the only true God. See that you live before him, first of all, as the the source of every blessing. These very things that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 8. He says in 8.6, the father of whom are all things. Do you thank him? For all the things that you have, because there's only one ultimately to thank. Certainly, you should thank your mother for the supper that she prepared, and you should thank your father for the new bicycle that he bought you. Those things, but ultimately, you should thank God for all of your blessings because He's behind them all. Ultimately, they come from Him. To fail to thank him has always been one of the great failings of his people in their prosperity. It's funny, when people don't have much, they thank God. And when they have a whole lot, they don't thank God anymore. That doesn't make sense. They become proud and they begin to think that they have their blessings by their own wisdom and power. When in truth, it is God who gives you the power to get what we read about that. In uh, Deuteronomy 6, the warning, the strong warning that, it goes on into chapter 8 as well, uh, that, that we will forget God in our prosperity. We'll have houses that, that we didn't build and vineyards that we didn't plant. And then beware lest you forget the Lord your God, who redeemed you. See, it's a warning that we need to hear today. Related to this, since all things are of Him, you should look to Him for your needs too. It's the only other thing that you do when you have one God. He's the one that you finally appeal to. Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread, and so we should. Pray for your work and for your success at work. Ask God's blessing when you begin a new project, new venture, when you go on a journey. Ask Him for safety when you begin your day. Ask Him to help you, to serve Him, to serve others, to honor God in your day, to have the strength that you need to do your work. And above all, look to Him for your spiritual blessings. Don't read the word without prayer. Don't listen to the word preached without praying for a blessing from God. When you're perplexed, look to the Lord to, to clear your mind with his, with his truth. Pray for when you're tempted or tested so that you will continue to, to follow the Lord and won't give way to the temptations. Pray for those around you and their trials and temptations, that they will be true to the Lord and that they will glorify him. Pray that he would make himself known to you. Ask God, show me your glory. And if you think your blessings ultimately come from any source but from his hand, then you're living as a practical atheist. Pagans have different gods that they trust trust in and different gods that they thank. And they never ascend to the true God to look to him and to thank him. They look to the government to bless them. They look to their neighbors. They look to their own wisdom, their own power. These are their gods. But it is for you to walk with the true God as the source of every blessing, depending on him in prayer and thanking him for all that he does for you. The father of whom are all things. Second, See that you live for God is the only one to obey, to serve, and to enjoy. We are, as 1 Corinthians 8, 6 also says, for Him. Our lives are to be for Him. Now, I already talked about that, but you see now I'm talking about that you need to see that this is the case with you. When you have multiple gods, you can choose which one you want to obey. You're like the child that wants to go outside and you ask your mom if you can go outside. And she says, no, no, I don't want you to go outside. And so then you sneak over to your dad. You say, he wasn't listening. You say, hey, can I go outside? And he says, sure. So you go outside and your mom says, hey. Right? you got two different ones that you asked for. People often turn to idols so that they can get new rules. Because they don't like the rules that God has. Look at all the churches today. Churches that have a God that does not call wives to submit to their own husbands. Not like that. Oh, our God, we don't, our God doesn't doesn't, doesn't hold that. What God is that? Okay, or a God that says it's okay for two men to have sex or two women to have sex or for unmarried people to have sexual relations. What God is that? It's a different God. It's an idol, why do we do that? I want different rules. I don't like these rules. I'm going to go over to this idol. I like that church because they have the rules that, that I like. That's not how it works. You can't do that. There's only one God. There's only one God and he, he has revealed his will, not in your own head, not in the wisdom of men, but in the word. We must honestly come to the scripture with a will not to force the scriptures to say something that we're looking for them to say, but to honestly look and see what does the word say and to conform our lives fully to the instruction of the living God. Otherwise, you're playing with idols. We w- Why would you want to do anything but find out what is the will of the one true God? Why would you want to do the will of an idol that somebody made up or that you made up? You want to find out what's pleasing to the Lord. Who else should you be living for? Who else's directives should you be looking to follow? He alone is God. Now we could get on uh, much better if we would constantly stop what we're doing and think about whether what we're doing is pleasing to God. We get out of harmony with God. Because we don't say, what is the will of God? We say, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. Right? Is that how you're living? Are you living for the one true God? Are you living for what you want? Has he called you to do something that's hard? Has he called you to do something that's difficult? Is there some duty that you have? Something you need to repent of? Something that you need to do that is clearly God's will? It's difficult. And why don't you do it? What are you living for? An idol. Does he he not call you to deny yourself and take up your cross? To crucify your affections and lusts that war against your soul? Is that the true God that says that? That's what we read in his word. So is there another God that you can go serve instead? Confirm conform your whole life to your heavenly father, my dear friends. This is what living is about. This is living at its best. Not stubbornly doing what an idol wants, what you want, but conforming to God and live also that you might know him. He is your God. He is the one to praise and adore. His power and goodness are seen in his works. How beautiful is that love that caused him to send his son to die on the cross? Meditate on that. Look at him. Look at the beauty. You look at other things and find them beautiful and attractive. This is where the fullness of glory and beauty is all originates. What wisdom is his in the things that he has made? What wisdom is seen in his providential working? What wisdom is found in his word? There's so much here. From God. Devote yourself to knowing Him in particular because only He is God. We are here for Him. That's why we're here. And finally, see that you cling to Him as the God who sent Jesus to save us. Christ is, as 1 Corinthians 8 6 says, the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. As we've seen today, the true God is the Father. Of Jesus Christ. There's no other way of salvation. Jesus said it, John 14:6, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me." He didn't come to no purpose, for no reason. He came to seek and to save that which was lost and to bring us to the Father. He came to give us the Holy Spirit so that we could be born again and so that we could live for God. And turn to God for salvation and walk with God in the way I've just been talking about with, as our God. He came to give himself on the cross to atone for our sins so that we could be pardoned. He came to deliver us from the grip of Satan and sin and to rescue us from the death, from death and the curse. He came to lead us into his righteous kingdom, representing us all as our righteousness so that we could be acceptable to God as his kingdom people. The true God does not have another way of salvation than this way. See that you cling to Jesus Christ for your salvation. You're not clinging to Christ for salvation. Then you don't have the true God. You have an idol. God called, God's call has always been that we put ourselves into his hands, God's hands, to save us. To rely on anyone other than the one that God sent to save is to deny the one true God. And pretend that there is another God that has another way of salvation. It is Christ that we preach to all, testifying that apart from him, there is no salvation. The living and true God is the God who sent him to save his people from their sins. The offer of salvation through faith in him is an offer for all. Come to him and you will be reconciled to the true God. Coming to God in any other way? is to not come to God at all, but to come to an idol. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. If you think there is another God, then you are simply wrong. Please stand and let's call on the one true God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have clearly revealed yourself as the one and only God. And we know that this is the thing that probably causes more offense than anything else that we believe as Christians. Everybody wants Christians to also worship the emperor or to also worship some other God that's supposed to avert a storm or some God that is the, the uh, collective idea of the society of the day that we somehow are supposed to conform and to bow to the principles of that government or that agent or whatever it is, Lord. Uh, there's always someone else that's calling for for the place that belongs only to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, as we find perhaps the greatest battle within ourselves. Lord, we have our own passions and desires, sinful passions and desires that often conflict with with your will. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to be delivered from those sinful passions and desires. And that we would be able to live simply for you. Father, that we would quit messing around. That we would quit playing games. We would come and serve you wholeheartedly. Lord, we come so short. Come so short of your glory. So much sin in us. So much uncleanness. Father, help us to recognize that you are the only God. The one who is revealed in your word. The one who is revealed in your son. And we pray, Lord, that we would make you known to the people around us, that with boldness and clarity, that we would testify that there is only one God. That's always been the Christian testimony when we are true to that testimony. And today, Lord, it's less and less often heard. But we pray, Lord, that that you would help us to hold tightly to this truth and that we would go forward honoring you and that we would see others come to know the true God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now the blessing of our Lord. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.